Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, it's Coindesk TV. You're watching The Hash. Best show on Coindesk TV. Everyone knows. Everyone says so. We're here. It's Friday. Happy St. Patty's Day. I'm Zach Seward. We got Adam B. Levine. We got David Z. Morris. My middle initial is R. Let's get this thing going. Adam, take it away. Thanks, Zach. <laughs> First up, 11 big banks, including JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and more, announced last night that they would take the somewhat theatrical step of depositing $30 billion worth of uninsured deposits into the troubled First Republic Bank. But even that move, along with the introduction of the Fed's latest bailout window, might still not be enough to quiet concerns about just how stable and safe the U.S. banking system really is. Just this morning, as we go to air, even with yesterday's rescue still in the headlines, we're seeing First Republic stock trading down nearly 25%. Zach, we've had a backstop, a lending facility that lets banks uh, basically exchange their, get their cash back for bad investments made at essentially the best terms. And now the big banks are throwing cash at the problem also. What do you think it will take for the regulators to restore confidence in the banking system? Or is that something that we're not even really expecting at this point? Well, you know what First Republic Bank doesn't have? The taint of crypto attached to it. That's the thing that stands out to me as it relates to its ability to survive while we see Signature be wound down. Obviously, this crisis is one of confidence. If you look at people who are researching this issue, pretty much all mid-sized banks are having this issue, right? They bought bonds that are now worth far less than what they were marked as on their books, right? So clearly, I think people are worried that this could spread to other banks across the country not just those in California who service tech firms, but again, those who you know have customers who are looking to find yield and who are realizing that in this interest rate environment, they can go elsewhere to get yield and they can take that money out of a bank quickly in the palm of their hand and deposit it in a money market account. They can deposit it with treasuries at their own will, right? So I think clearly what we're seeing is a response to sort of this systemic reality in which we now find ourselves in where money is moving as fast as it ever has, faster than ever indeed. And all of a sudden, billions and billions of dollars are being drawn out of these banks in hours time. It's quite remarkable. And I think that's why we're seeing sort of these remarkable steps be taken both from the public and private sector, at least in this instance. Uh, David, curious for your thoughts on this one for sure. 
Yeah, I definitely wanted to jump on that point about about money moving fast, right? And, and I wanted like it's fascinating, and obviously this is a very real situation that I don't want to over intellectualize, but it's fascinating to look back on the last eighteen months in crypto and see that the same things are now happening in mainstream banking with with particularly hot money or what you might call rotator capital, whether it's driven by seeking higher yields elsewhere or fear people are able to, to move a lot of money around fast, and that has serious consequences for the people managing it. Um, and, and I guess I also wanted to you know, kind of add a little bit to the question of confidence. The question for me here still is, you know, is this actually something where signaling and confidence are the key issues, or is this just math and the consequences are kind of inevitable here? And it looks like Adam maybe wants to jump in on that one, so I'll, I'll throw it over. Yeah, I mean, so we've seen, I forget actually where the statistic came from, but we saw a couple of days ago that banks broadly are sitting on roughly $600 billion of these losses. And these losses are not necessarily like you can blame the banks for it, but I think it's a much more realistic way to look at it that you should blame the interest rate environment for it, right? Effectively, what the US central bank and the government has done, and this isn't restricted to the US, but it's been worse in the US, has pushed up rates so far so fast that anybody who has a long-term outlook, like an insurance company or a pension or a big bank, you know, these places typically are making long-term decisions based on historical precedents. And when you're literally just making up the monetary policy rules as you go along on a month-by-month basis, that's not a particularly predictable environment where the past can tell you a lot about the future. In fact, the opposite is usually true. And in fact, that's what we've seen here today. So this is sort of like the arsonist now running along and trying to put out all the fires that they inadvertently created, which were fires that they created accidentally in the first place, trying to put out the last batch of fires before that. And, you know, again, the Benny Hill music just plays in your head without even saying anything. Like this is a very unfortunate situation in that it involves real people's money. And that is a tragic thing. But the reality of it is, is that the reason why the banking system seems to be teetering is because the banking system contrary to what we've been told over the last 10 years across multiple financial crises, actually hasn't had any sort of meaningful improvement that has changed the underlying problem, which is that to the extent that people want their money back and lose faith in the system, system can't really support it. And that's a really, really dangerous reality. And it's the one that I think we find ourselves in today. So it's, you know, to answer my own question, I don't know what can restore confidence here. I think that it needs to be something that's dramatic. And I think that we are likely to get that because we are not seeing efficacy from the moves that have been taken so far. So it will become more politically costly in order to do that as time goes on. And I suspect that that, that is, in fact, where we still wind up at the end of this, because I don't see another way they solve this problem. Yeah, I'll, I'll just make one last point here, which is it is very interesting to see the contrast between the, as Zach sort of alluded to, between the, the way First Republic has been handled by this coalition of mega banks and not just Silvergate, the crypto bank, um, but also Silicon Valley Bank was basically allowed to languish. And, and it seems like there were no bidders for it in its sale offer last weekend. But meanwhile, you have have 30 billion pumped into First Republic. I don't know exactly what to make of it, but that is definitely a notable contrast. Zach? Yeah, we saw that reporting yesterday and we talked about it on the show about, you know, signature the condition of it being taken over by outside parties uh, is, you know, conditional on them winding down Signet, right? Which was their, um, you know, their their digital payments rails that serviced a lot of the crypto companies that were, you know, again, 20% of their business. So there are those sort of terms that are already being 
attached to whatever comes next that, hey, you can't deal with crypto. And I think that does, again, add fuel to the fire of a lot of these sort of conspiracy theories out there that Operation Choke Point 2.0 is real and is escalating. Can I ask this to Adam for his last thoughts? Yeah, uh, two just quick notes here. One, I believe that this morning the FDIC actually did come out and deny those uh, anonymous claims because those anonymous claims, I believe, showed up. I think it was the Wall Street Journal. But anyways, uh, the FDIC came out and rebuked those, said that that was not, in fact, a condition there. So maybe they changed it. Maybe it was true before. At least right now, they're saying it's not true. And then to, um, to the point that you made, David, actually, supposedly there was a bidder that emerged over the weekend. And it was one Whoa. that was approved okay, by the Treasury that. and was approved by the Fed, but was not approved by the FDIC. And that was taken from, again, some insider comments that came out as a, as a sign that the Biden administration had specific people or specific groups who they would have allowed to make that purchase, but the bidder was not one of them. So anyways, again, like so much rumor going on right now, so many whispers, nobody really knows what's true. And again, it's this type of an environment that's so dangerous right now with so much hot money floating around and so much concern about that. But I think we can move on. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Zach. Now, fluid situation, we will slide to the next story. Let's go to the land of corporate NFTs. Let's talk about Salesforce and Polygon. Polygon racking up a number of big wins as it relates to big Web2 brands. Salesforce is one of those. Salesforce is going to dabble in the NFT space as it relates to loyalty rewards and other perks. This, I think, interestingly comes on the heels of Meta, Facebook parent company, winding down its NFT adventure over in Instagram. So there may be some momentum for the Web3 believers in the hollowed halls of Silicon Valley, and this may be that, or I don't know, maybe just Solana is, sorry, not Solana, Polygon here is playing to win. Interesting to see, definitely some big names involved. Going to toss this to David for his initial thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think that the contrast with with Meta slash Facebook, which I I always hate to call Meta, uh, is uh, is is useful um, because you know the the Meta initiative was on Instagram um, and I think one other, but basically it was retail focused. It was you know mass focused, and Salesforce doesn't really do that. I mean, to my knowledge, at all, they're really focused on small groups and and services for businesses. Maybe they're doing some consulting to help people build retail facing operations, but you know, I think that the the NFT stuff it does. I, I'm still disappointed that Meta pulled out, but what are they going to do but disappoint you? But the point being, it really works better when you're starting with smaller groups, doing stuff that has a much more specific application where you can build systems that interact with these things in in multiple ways, rather than just making it your your profile or something. Although you know, I think those programs are great, and and I'm I'm for them. So I mean, this does seem interesting. A lot of NFT applications are more focused on helping groups work together. So it, it makes sense at a high level. And obviously, Polygon remains on a, on a pretty solid run here. So good for them. We'll see what happens. A lot of these corporate tie-ups don't tend to work out. So I wouldn't get too ahead of yourself. But, uh, but it seems interesting. Adam, you want to chime in? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll take a slightly more optimistic approach on this one. When we're talking about Polygon, clearly, again, like their biz dev has just been on fire. Like they're, you know, of all of the platforms that are out there and protocols that are out there, they're really, really doing a good job with these types of larger corporate partnerships that appear to have something real behind them. Now, secondly, I would distinguish between what Instagram was doing, which was a very kind of artistic, traditional NFT play type of thing just bringing it to a different audience, right? But really, it, it was an Instagram product. They were the platform, and then they had users on it. 
Salesforce doesn't really work like that. Salesforce is really an invisible, gigantic company that sits behind so many names out there and so many systems that you don't even know that they power. And I tell you, since the very earliest days of non-currency token use cases back in 2014, when I started what I believe was the first tokenized rewards program, rewards programs have been a very, very, very powerful thing. We've most recently seen that with Starbucks, but Starbucks had to do something of a bespoke program, right? So if what Salesforce is essentially offering here is the ability to create interoperable rewards programs that have yes. the advantages of something like airline miles, but have the, also the advantages that you get from sort of Web3 native blockchainized tokens and things like that, that strikes me as something that's really powerful, not because of what it means for Salesforce, but, what, but because of what it means for all of those users to the extent that they want to do something like this, it now becomes easy. And again, that interoperable nature of it, I think, is something of a killer app when it comes to things like rewards programs that, you know, it'll take a while, maybe 10 years. But I suspect that that mm. becomes a big, big deal uh, in the future. So that's my read on it. Overall, pretty positive for me. And uh, back to you, Zach. That was a big picture take. That was a gigabrain take right there. The idea that we might have, mm -hmm. like, I don't know tradable airline mile NFTs at some point in the future, powered by such technology. Amazing. All right, that's it. We're going to leave that one there for the time being. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. Welcome back to The Hash, where we talk about fun stuff like fraud and the Fed and mostly fraud lately, I guess. And we have more on that front from Sam Bankman-Fried and the FTX crime family. We now are learning via time some new reporting out yesterday that particularly important figures who frankly helped pave the way for the entire FTX fraud were informed about specific allegations against Sam Bankman-Fried way back in April of 2018. And they helped shove it under the rug and in turn made it possible for Sam to continue growing his fraud. And the capper to all of this is that these same people wound up benefiting from having covered for Sam early on because they got funding through FTX. Specifically, the article from Time, frankly, I think the headline undersells it. Four top Alameda executives in 2018 started organizing a meeting to confront Sam Bankman-Fried with misdeeds he had already committed by that point, including sleeping with subordinates, allegedly and falsely claiming that he was the sole owner of Alameda in filing documents, pushing out other owners. So this is not just somebody got told that in vague terms, Sam Bankman-Fried was a bad guy. This was a corporate attempt at Alameda to get rid of him early on because of his bad actions. And William McCaskill, the Oxford philosopher, who's one of the heads of the effective altruism movement, apparently threatened people, allegedly, who were advancing these claims. And his name was used to bully them into silence because he was a supporter of Bankman-Fried. So we really have what looks to me like a pretty clear elite conspiracy led by figures at Oxford to backstop Bankman-Fried. Sorry, that's a lot to explain, but I want to make sure people understand just how serious and specific this is. Adam, you're giving me the most shocked responses in the camera, so I'm going to throw it to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that what we've seen with the crypto sector at numerous points is that there are significant opportunities for charismatic sociopaths who are willing to say and do whatever it takes in order to achieve their aims. The fact that they can then find themselves surrounded by people who are essentially in on it and at least complicit because they continue to benefit from it, that strikes me as being entirely consistent, both with the world of cryptocurrency and the broader sort of financial world at large. Again, like we kind of look at you know, like the amount of money that a person has as like a score in a video game where it's Mm -hmm. like the higher your number, the smarter you are. Right. And so then once you have that high number, then it's just sort of assumed that you're someone who's smart, who clearly has figured out how to make it. Ergo, you are somebody who should be influential. And it's kind of this backdoor way of somebody who doesn't really matter, but is willing to cheat and do whatever it takes to get that score up to then matter. You can look at politicians and see the same thing. Many of them go in without really much money to their name and they'll come out 10 or 15 years later as some of the richest people in the country. It's not because of what they're getting paid. There's something else that's going on there. But this again is unfortunate, but seems entirely consistent. And once again, is a reminder that to the extent that you find yourself in the company of charismatic sociopaths who seem like they're willing to do whatever it takes in order to get what they want, that may have some short-term advantages for you, but probably it's not a good long-term decision. Zach, kick it over to you. I think Can I just jump thing, in? Yeah, you it's got so it. iron, <laughs> ironic. Sorry, it's so ironic that you make the point that this is not a long-term good decision and the entire point of effective altruism is to think about the far future instead of the present. Sorry, just wanted to flag that. It's a good fig leaf. I mean, like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go all in on this type of thing, why wouldn't you use the most absolutely gallingly, you know, like hypocritical way to possibly do it, right? Like that's the joke of the whole thing. Anyway, sorry, Zach, over to you. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, I think that EA as sort of this undergirding idea of the whole FTX empire was really key to its ascent, right? I think crypto is often sort of accused of being nihilistic, right? It doesn't really mean anything. Most of these coins don't really mean anything. The real world impact to date is fairly limited. And yet there are these atrocious sums of money being reaped in by many people every single day. So to have EA sort of giving a a moral backbone in this instance to the ascent of the FTX story, and then seeing it sort of, you know, all blow up in their faces, really, with all these revelations that have come to light with Sam Bankman-Fried, who had become in the popular imagination, sort of the figurehead of this movement, despite some of the earlier work that had been put in by these actual scholars. I mean, the, the whole thing just adds to another sort of degree of richness to the rise and fall that is captured in the SBF and FTX saga, right? So this whole thing, I think, is important to understand because EA did sort of provide that intellectual veneer to FTX and specifically Alameda, which was, hey, we're making as much money as possible. Oh, wait, no, there is this sort of moral imperative buried underneath, underneath it. It's called EA. Learn about it, right? And it is kind of... Uh, right. disheartening and a bit a bit sad, honestly, that that was one of the many lies that are alleged to have taken place over the years with SBF and FTX was that there was some moral core when the more we learn, the more it suggests that that's not the case. David, I'm tossing it to you. Yeah. And, and to, to remind people who might have missed it or forgotten at this point, there was also the infamous Twitter DM exchange with a reporter, I believe, from Motherboard at Vice where Bankman-Fried essentially admitted that the entire effective altruism thing was designed to distract people. 
Um, and also in the news in the past couple of days, to add to this, we learned that Bankman Fried, and I didn't see specifics about you know what the line items were, how much of this was salary and how much might have been other things, but he was paid uh, $2.2 billion by uh, FTX, and, and that's come out in the bankruptcy process, which remember, <laughs> again, you have to like keep these numbers in mind to to remember exactly how insane the the behavior was, the entire market cap of FTX at its peak, and correct me if I'm missing this, but I believe it was $10 billion. That was the enterprise value total of FTX. And so not only did he get paid this $2.2 billion that was like a quarter of the entire value of the supposed company, but he had also taken loans of multiple billions of dollars. So this was all just rampant extraction from the company going on right under the noses of a board that didn't exist because the venture capitalists just decided that this guy didn't need any oversight. So, you know, when you start talking, there's just like so much bad behavior going on everywhere. But anyway, Adam, stop me before I kill again. Well, I mean, the thing that I'm most curious about at this point, honestly, is like we are hearing so many allegations. I really, really, really want to watch this go to court. I really, really want to see kind of this before a jury with evidence presented in ways that it can actually be validated or not. Because as it stands right now, I, I don't know what to believe about all of this stuff. All I know is that there is a gigantic mess there with some degree of what appears to be fraud. But outside of that, everything is just kind of like he said, she said between the new management and the old management. So again, like that October case date, man, I'm really, really looking forward to mm -hmm. that and thinking that that's going to be that's going to be full of fireworks. But I think we can I'm hitting the gym. I'm getting in yeah. shape. I'm getting ready. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay, let's go to our last story for today. So finally, the U.S. Federal Reserve's balance sheet expanded by some $297 billion in less than a week. Some are saying that this is a new form of quantitative easing, but other market observers have been a little more specific about how quantitative easing works and say that it's not. The distinction for some seems to be around whether or not the purpose is to stimulate the economy as opposed to keeping troubled banks afloat. But personally, I don't find those arguments persuasive. Money is fungible. And when you allow banks that have taken losses that are not yet recognized to then pull liquidity back from those losses by having a bank lending facility like the Fed open that will give you face value, even if the market value is significantly lower, that feels like that's unlocking liquidity to me, which is basically what quantitative easing does. David, I know you and I a lot of times don't agree on economic issues. I'll kick this over to you. What do you think here? No, I, I, I totally agree with you on this one. And I was a little <laughs> surprised to see you um, taking, this, taking this story on to even associate your name with it, because I think that the, the, the distinction between QE and a bailout and a backstop and like free loan money is just totally academic. I mean, the fact that you're basically getting, I mean, you're getting QE after the fact essentially here. I mean, you're getting your assets bought up by the Fed. Now, to be fair, the, the loans are only one year duration. So that is a genuine limitation on the liquidity being provided here. Adam, I'll let you jump in if you want to correct me on that one. Well, I mean, I'll just say that, that right now the term is one year for now, right? The Fed doesn't have any economic motivations. True. The Fed's motivation is stability. So if we get a year from now and these things are still underwater, what are the chances that the Fed lets the banking system go under because they don't want to extend for another year? No, they're going to kick the can. That's the entire game here. But back mm. to you. I do not like that, but you are correct. Um, but at least, you know, there's a fig leaf. OK, let's put it that way. 
And, and, and at least there's like some signal of restraint. I mean, obviously, we saw these venture capitalists acting like absolute infants over the weekend last weekend, demanding their treats, and they got them. And that will probably continue to happen. That's just how the system works now. And I'm sure somebody smarter than me can explain how that ultimately devolves to the American taxpayer shouldering risk from billionaires. And uh, perhaps we have that person here with us today. <laughs> I'm not going to explain that part, but I will say that one of the things I think that we did not know going into the weekend that we now know coming out of the weekend, I, and this is not an original thought for myself, but it's one that struck me, is that like enough people who have allowed enough voice yelling that there will be a crisis is actually enough at this point to catalyze a crisis response from the federal government which then makes mm -hmm. it so that it turns into a real crisis because the federal government has intervened in order to bail them out. So that honestly is a terrifying dynamic to me because effectively you're talking about bailout by influence or whining. And I mean, like, mm -hmm. if that's our metric for what it takes to get federal government banking intervention at this point, then we are done. Zach, I appreciate we've dominated this conversation. Let's kick it over to you for some thoughts. I've been enjoying it. I don't have a ton to add. I mean, I think for like the crypto degens out there, QE equals buy now because Bitcoin going up. Is that right? Is that sort of the general expectation? Bitcoin thrived in a period of quantitative easing when money was cheap and people were looking to park it somewhere. So I think for the crypto Twitter set, maybe it's just as simple as that. But I don't know. Adam, what do you think? I mean, Bitcoin is a cork, right? Like Bitcoin literally floats with whatever the monetary policy environment is. So if the tide is going out, then it's bad for Bitcoin. And if the tide is coming in, then it's good for Bitcoin. And I think that irrespective of whether we call this quantitative easing or not, the idea that the central bank is going to tighten liquidity provisioning by actually selling some of their balance sheet back into the market, that's a dead letter at this point. That is not going to happen. I think we've seen something like $500 billion worth of inflows so far over the last month. That $300 billion number, that was a week. <laughs> and that was not even the last half of this week as all of these crises have continued to just sort of boil under the surface in like soft form. So yeah, it's, it's wild. Zach? Money is wild. We will talk about it, I'm sure, next week. That's it for the show. That's it for the week. Check us out on the podcast network. Check out All About Bitcoin at 3 p.m. Eastern. I'm Zach. That's Adam. David's here. We'll see you soon. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.